Well, the first thing that I do is when I get up on the horse is make sure that I land very softly, that I put my weight in my stirrups before I sit down so that I don't land hard on the horse's back. So I try to very much, you know, not surprise, have my first meeting with the horse be a little bit abrupt by me, you know, plopping down on their back. And then what I like to do is just, just close my leg, have them move quietly off, and then ask them to halt five or six strides later and, and sort of just do that until the two of us are comfortable. It's, it's I often say trying a horse is like going out on a first date, you know, and so you've got to sort of feel around the edges and sort of have those awkward moments of, hi, who are you? <laughs> this is who I am. This is what a half halt feels like with me. Practical Horseman Podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandy Olenek, and this week's episode is with eventer Courtney Cooper. Though Courtney is an accomplished international five-star event rider, she also is well-known for her domestic and consignment horse sales program. In this episode, she and I chat about what you need to know if you're planning to buy a horse. Courtney walks us through the process of buying a horse, from how to begin, to trying out a horse, to the bill of sale. What I like about our conversation is that Courtney shares so many details that will give you the best opportunity to buy a horse that will meet your specific goals and dreams. For example, she shares a list of six factors that affect the price of a horse and suggests that you consider how those factors play into your horse search. Courtney also offers advice on the questions to ask sellers to make sure you're zeroing in on the details that are most important to you. She also discusses how to keep your emotions in check, because let's face it, looking for your next dream partner can be emotional. Toward the end of the interview, she talks about the importance of a horse's confirmation because not all issues are deal breakers. To give you a little more background on Courtney, she trained and showed event horses with Martha Ann Shires, a member of the 1978 World Championship Canadian team, as well as with Olympic eventing team silver and individual bronze medalist Michael Page. After college in Texas, she moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where she worked as a financial planner and insurance agent with Northwestern Mutual and rode and competed as an amateur for seven years. Her goal was to compete internationally at the highest levels, so her instructor, Bruce Davidson Sr., advised her to move to an area where the travel component wasn't such an issue. In 1996, she moved to Pennsylvania and started C-Square Farm with her husband, Neil. In addition to training, Courtney carved out a niche of buying and selling horses. Since then, in addition to her domestic sales program, she's developed the Excel Star business with partners in Ireland, importing European-bred horses for the last eight years. Courtney has also been successful in the competition arena. She and the homebred, Who's a Star, finished third in the 2013 CCI Three Star at the Jersey Fresh International Three-Day Event and completed the 2016 Rolex Kentucky Three-Day Event. She and Tender Bravissimo 
won the Training Horse Championship at the 2016 American Eventing Championship and a CIC One Star at the 2017 Fairhill International. With another up-and-coming star, Kaya Z, Courtney was reserve champion in the Training Horse Division at the 2017 American Eventing Championships. Before the conversation with Courtney gets underway, I want to thank the sponsor of this week's podcast, Bimeda. Bimeda might be the biggest animal health company you've never heard of till now. Bimeda's products have been trusted by veterinarians and owners since the 1960s when their Irish roots began. Bimeda is one of the largest producers of dewormers like Equimax, Bimectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes also rely on polyglycan, a patented formula that replaces lost or damaged synovial fluid, and Confidence EQ pheromone gel, which reduces and prevents equine stress. Consult your veterinarian and visit buymedaus.com to see where to buy their products. Now, let's jump right into our conversation with Courtney, where she talks about six factors you should consider when buying a horse. So I always think that it's, if at all possible, it's good to sit down with a professional or with a friend who is a very objective friend and to write out a list of things that you feel are really important. And there are usually six factors that I tell people affect the price of the horse. And so those are usually the six factors that I start with. And those are the age of the horse, the height of the horse, sex of the horse, experience, potential, and then also the rideability. And so with those six things, you have various um, fluctuations in all of those things that make horses more expensive or less expensive. And those are the things that over time, you'll learn in your horse hunt, sometimes you're going to have to give or take on, on those things. Those would be the basics um, sort of if you're making a cake, you know, you're going to need flour and um, sugar and eggs and um, oil and, and those types of things. And that's sort of what age, um, height, experience, potential, um, rideability do for you, because all of those things sort of dictate where you start. Um, you know, I, for example, look for uh, sell a lot of young horses. So it's it's pretty unusual for me to be looking personally for a horse that's over the age of six or seven. Mm -hmm. um, but if I have a client who is looking for a schoolmaster, obviously I'm not going to be looking for a six-year-old. You know, I'm going to be looking for something, you know, potentially nine, 10, 12, 15 years old, depending on what their criteria are on the other side of the puzzle. And so you start with those things and then I think because I, I've always said that my clients are a, a compilation of the experiences they've had in the past. So if you've had a horse, for example, that didn't ship well, then one of the things on your list of, of items that will be important to you will be that, you know, potentially that the horse has to be a good shipper, you know, has to be comfortable mm -hmm. in a bumper pull has to be uh, happy to go in a slant load has to be able to go on a head to head you know maybe your horse had 
very shelly feet and a long toe and a low heel. So the horse has to have good feet. You know, all of those things um, that you've had experience with, both good and bad, will make up a list of the things you want in a new horse. And some things will be total deal breakers. You know, some people will say, um, you know, I won't look at a horse who has had um, a wind operation or I don't want a gray horse because I've had a gray horse that had melanomas. Whatever it is, if those are deal breakers, you need to have a list of those as well because there's no point in going to look at a gray mare that has bad feet but workable feet um, that is a tentative shipper if you know that three of those four things are deal breakers for you. <laughs> um, maybe maybe one of those things you can you can work with, but the other things you can't. But certainly, you want to make a list of things that are important for you. Um, additionally, you want to think about, you know, long term, what am I looking for this horse to do? I find sometimes... Um, when you sit down with a client and you start fleshing out sort of their ideal horse, there becomes a point at which you have to say, this is realistic or this is not realistic. I get a lot of parents who would like to have the horse that will take their child, for example, in eventing from beginner novice up through the intermediate level. And while there is a horse like that that exists, um, generally, the budget doesn't allow to purchase a horse like that, um, and that would be a very rare individual. And so you'd be hunting for a while, and it's much more likely that you're going to buy one horse that takes some beginner novice and novice, and then another horse that sort of takes some training and preliminary, and then yet another horse that takes some preliminary and intermediate. And so that's why having, you know, a, a professional involved to help you walk through what is considered realistic is important. Um, or like I said, the objective friend who can say, you know, it's great that you want a horse that can jump three, six, but you're jumping two feet right now. Mm -hmm. And the horse that can jump three, six um, with you now, again, has to be exceedingly quiet and kind and, and all of those things. Um, whereas if you buy a, two foot two six horse now and you um, learn to do the hunters at two foot two six and with a good change and uh, you learn the basics and and going around and you get some good ribbons and then you buy a three foot horse and then you buy a three six horse um, again there's a reasonable progression and so having a friend or someone objective who can help sort of keep you on task I think is always real important so that would be the first step I would say when anybody is looking to purchase a horse. And, um, you know, if, if a person is going out and, and, you know, shopping around for themselves, um, hopefully, like you said, then, uh, enlisting the help of, uh, an objective friend, at least, um, sh should, uh, should, you had mentioned it in an article for practical about, you know, checking a seller's references and what's the best way to go about doing this and when in the process do you check them do you sort of check that before you even start to look at the horses that the person might have available 
So in terms of sellers, you know, I think it's always important to feel real comfortable with a person selling a horse. And I think you'll get a good feel for that based on how transparent and open they are about the horses. Because at the end of the day, all horses have pros and they have cons. It's, it's no different than any of us. Um, you know, we have very strong attributes and then we have weaknesses. And so I think if I'm talking to a seller, you know, I want to, I don't necessarily need to look at their references straight up, you know, like when I start the process, mm -hmm. um, because I, I generally would get a pretty good feeling from them as I talk to them, if they're being transparent and open, you know, if you, if you talk to someone and you say, what's the worst thing this horse does? And they say, well, he doesn't do anything bad. Well, <laughs> every horse does something, you know, and it may not be a big deal and it may not be much of anything, but we all have things that, you know, the horses do that we would prefer them not to do. Um, so I think that gives you an insight into, you know, sort of the person you're dealing with. Um, I'm a huge believer in allowing people to see the medical records of horses that they are interested in pre-purchasing. I think that if you've got a horse that has been doing the job or you think will do the job for you and you're interested in purchasing that horse and you've set up a pre-purchase exam, I think at that point it behooves you to look at the horse's medical records because I think that the horse has been successful hopefully with its current owner um, and for whatever reason the sale is going through but it will give you an idea as to any previous injuries how they've been treated how they've been able to keep the horse going and I think that's real important and I think if you are dealing with a seller who is not comfortable with that that also gives you an indication as to how comfortable perhaps you are dealing with the seller and mm -hmm. then you know, you can talk to people who bought horses from them and, you know, ask some questions like, you know, were you surprised by anything? Um, was the horse at home like he was when you tried the horse, et cetera? And you can, you can ask a, a bevy of questions. Mm -hmm. And that uh, leads into the next question is, uh, you know, what types of questions um, should you ask when you first call a seller about a horse? Like what kind of information is appropriate to ask before you even go and try a horse? So one of the questions that I like to ask, I mean, you, you generally will have, again, my six basic questions. You'll have the age. Um, you'll have the height. Usually you'll have the experience of the horse. Uh, the ad may or may not have listed potential. Um, when you look at an ad, if you've got for example, a horse that you're looking at to jump in the meter 10 or the meter 15 jumpers and the horse has um, got a nice photo, but the photo shows the horse over 2.6, I would ask why, you know, mm -hmm. why, why if the horse is being advertised as something that can jump 3.639 is the horse being shown over 2.6, um, you know, maybe there's a reason, but that's something I definitely want to know. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to know why the horse is for sale. Um, you know, I'd also like to know, are there any pre-existing conditions or vices the horse has? Um, a lot of people aren't allowed in boarding situations to have horses with vices. 
And so uh, weavers or cribbers or um, stall walkers. And so those are all important things to know. And they should be mentioned. Um, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're forgotten. But those are all things that, you know, you want to know about it. Because if, if your boarding situation doesn't allow you to have a cribber, and it's the only boarding situation that you can deal with because of your schedule or your trainer or location or any of those reasons, it doesn't necessarily make sense for you to go and look at that horse because it'll be a waste of time for both the seller and the buyer. Mm -hmm. um, other questions I like to ask, um, is the horse on any maintenance? Um, because I, I don't necessarily mind if a horse is on any maintenance but I'd like to know it before I get there. Mm -hmm. um, I also like to know if a horse has any recent, um, has been recently pre-purchased. So if, for example, I'm interested in the horse and I ask, has the horse been recently pre-purchased? And I found out that there was a pre-purchase exam a week or two ago and the people passed for X, Y, and Z reason. Um, it may not bother me at all. It may um, set up a red flag that I need to deal with um, moving forward, um, or it may make me, you know, uninterested in the horse. Mm -hmm. But again, it, you'd like to do, you'd like to be good in your questioning so that you don't waste your time or the seller's time. Mm -hmm. Right. And you'd mentioned uh, this a little bit, but um, in an article, you worked on with us at practical, you talked about zeroing in on the details most important to you. Um, like if you'll be riding in a field with other horses, ask if, if he's okay with that. Um, and Correct. That you know, if you're, if you're, if you hack out a lot by yourself, ask out, you know, ask, ask is the horse okay with that? Um, if you are an inventor and you want a horse to go cross country, you know, ask if you're going to, be able to take the horse cross country. Um, if, you know, you ride in the evenings and it's after feeding time, a lot of horses get um, a little undone by that. Ask, ask that question. Ask, ask those specific sort of details to your life, which perhaps the seller wouldn't have any indication to give you information on. Mm -hmm. And then, um, how do you research what a fair price for the type of horse that you're interested in? And should you do that beforehand? Um, you know, when does, when do you start thinking about that? So with horses, the amount someone is willing to pay is what the horse is worth. And it's sort of like buying a house. Mm -hmm. And there are days when as the owner of a house, if, you have to move for whatever reason um, that you're ready to sell a piece of property. And it's a little bit the same with the horse. There are days that you ride the horse and you're like, this is the best horse in the world. And I don't know why I'm selling it. And you're absolutely in love with it. But for some reason, maybe you're moving overseas or you're going to be having a baby or whatever reason you have to sell the horse. And at that point, you're not going to be very flexible on your price but then there might be a day when you know you've got an argument with your husband about the cost of boarding and um, your kids are being homeschooled and you really feel like you don't have any time to ride um, and there are external time pressures 
And at that point, the time the horse might be very negotiable. So regarding price, what I'd like to say to people is most people price their horse with a little negotiation built into the price um, that they advertise. Some people don't, and it'll be a cold, hard, you know, this is what the price is. So don't go and look at a horse that is out of your budget unless you specifically ask, is the horse negotiable? Is the price on the horse negotiable? Um, because there might be some room, but there might be no room. Um, and so, you know, if I have, for example, $25,000 to spend on a horse, I might go look at something that's 27,000 or 28,000, but I certainly wouldn't go look at a horse that's 35,000 unless I specifically asked, you know, is there a degree of negotiability in the horse's purchase price? Okay. Um, and then, you know, once you've um, sort of asked your questions on the phone and um, you go to try a horse, I guess, what, what should you do when you go to try a horse? Like what questions do you ask at this point or what things do you notice? So different people, again, have different experiences and they've had, had different life experiences. I, as a seller, generally have the horse um, cleaned up, um, brushed up, not tacked, but but brushed up and in a in a stall um, waiting for a client to arrive. Some clients like to see the horses brought in from a field. It's fine with me. Um, some people like to brush the horses. Again, fine with me. Um, but you just need to know sort of what people want to do. If you're going to be comfortable in your own tack, um, bring it and have the seller try it on the horse, make sure it fits the horse. Um, they might be more comfortable riding their tack and then switching it to your tack. I've had certainly um, I'm not the biggest person. And so I've had, you know, gentlemen come that are six, four and they don't fit in my tack. And so, you know, they ride in their own saddles and stuff. Um, so we've done that as well as having, you know, small children who have pony saddles. So um, certainly if you need your own equipment, bring your own equipment, ask them if it, you can, you can, um, have your saddle on the horse before you go to tack the horse up so that you know, you know, if you have to bring an extra pad out to the riding ring, you can do that. Um, as for questions um, you ask when you get there, I think it's more of a, a watching and a listening process when you go and look at a horse because I think people will tell you a lot about their horses just if you let them talk. And things happen organically. And so you can you can ask follow-up questions as they're talking about the horse. But I think it's important to see the interaction of the horse in the stable, how they stand on cross ties. Are they patient? Do they um, wear their ears well in terms of, you know, do they seem happy and interested? Um, are they annoyed by horses around them? Um, you know, if you have, for example, small children, um, are the children with you? How do they relate um, to the horse? Not that you want your children running underneath the horse, but, you know, some horses um, are not particularly friendly, you know, and if that's going to be an issue, you need to know that. Um, because, again, that may not be something that you remember to ask about um, in your initial, you know, sort of questions that um, you sent or you emailed or you asked about. Um, but, you know, I sell a lot of horses to amateur owners and you know sometimes they've had a baby and they're just getting back into riding sometimes they have toddlers sometimes they have you know 
preteens. And so, you know, all of those, those children don't have the ability to sort of react and get out of the way of horses, you know, and sort of read the horse's signs. And so, you know, you need to be able to have an animal that you feel safe having, having children around. So, you know, if you can watch the interactions of, of how the horse works, um, that'll give you a good idea. And then, um, and then let the seller talk about the horses and, and ask questions about them and, and um, sort of probe and, you know, talk to them about, you know, what's the horse's turnout schedule and, um, you know, how often are they ridden and um, what's their daily routine like. And, and then I think you will get more information from, from the seller as you go along organically. Mm-hmm. And if uh, generally someone else rides the horse first, um, so if that's the case, what, what do you look for? Yeah, I, I'm a very, very strong proponent of always having someone else ride the horse first, unless you know the seller very, very well, or the horse, um, because I just think it throws an element of chance that you don't need to have um, in your life. <laughs> and for both, for both the seller and for the buyer, um, you know, I think it gives the the buyer a chance to watch the horse go. Um, I know, for example, when I'm overseas, you know, I watch how the horses to get on and off um, because a lot, again, I'm dealing with a lot of young horses. So I like to see how they react, um, you know, to someone getting on them. And um, do does the rider have a spur on? Um, do they carry a whip? Um, usually as someone who is trying a horse, I like to do what the rider has done. So I'm pretty comfortable in a pair of spurs. So if I see that someone showing me the horse has a pair of spurs on, I'll ask, is it okay if I ride in a pair of spurs? If they don't have spurs, I generally will ask that question as well because you know, a lot of times if you get on a youngster and you're the first person with spurs on, um, you'll be getting put on the ground rather unceremoniously. <laughs> And, and so you want to just pay attention to those things. Um, same thing with a whip, you know, you know, does that person carry a whip? Do you need to carry a whip? How does it, how does it feel? Um, again, how does the, the horse wear their ears? Um, what sort of bridle is on the horse? Um, is their tail quiet? Um, do they carry their tongue in their mouth? Um, do they have a flash or a grackle nose band figure eight? Um, you know, sort of all the little things. Do they forge? Um, do they strike themselves? You know, all of the little things that you sort of just watch um, as, as the horse goes around. Do they travel um, straight? Do they wing? Do they paddle? Um, do they go better to the left or to the right? Can you see that? You know, those types of things are all things that as as a buyer, I'm always looking for. Mm. That, that's a lot of great, great information. I guess when you, when it's you know time for you to ride the horse, what what do you do when riding, riding the horse? Well, the first thing that I do is when I get up on the horse is make sure that I land very softly, that I put my weight in my stirrups before I sit down, so that I don't land hard on the horse's back. So I try to very much 
you know, not surprised to have my first meeting with the horse be a little bit abrupt by me, you know, plopping down on their back. And then what I like to do is just, just close my leg, have them move quietly off, and then ask them to halt five or six strides later and, and sort of just do that until the two of us are comfortable. It's, it's I often say trying a horse is like going out on a first date, you know, and so you've got to sort of feel around the edges and sort of have those awkward moments of, hi, who are you? <laughs> this is who I am. This is what a half halt feels like with me. And so, you know, if you're riding a horse that's a bit sensitive, you can get a feel of how much leg you want to use or how much leg they're used to be using. And at the same time, you can get a feel for how much half halt you need or don't need. Um, and then once, you know, I sort of have that feel, you know, I start moving around the arena, I move them off of one leg or the other. Um, I might sit the trot a little bit, I'll post the trot. Um, maybe I'll go back to walk. I might just talk, if it's for an amateur client of mine, I may halt and, and talk to the client for a while and see if the horse is happy standing in the middle of the ring, sort of doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And because that's, you have to think about if I'm a professional helping a client, what's my client going to do? You know, if it's an amateur or junior, a lot of times they're going to stop in the middle of their lesson. They're going to talk to their friend or not in the middle of their lesson, but that in the middle of their work and they're going to talk to their friend and, you know, they're going to sort of goof off. And if you've got a horse that's a little bit busy and, you know, on its toes all the time, that not it's not necessarily going to be enjoyable. Whereas if, you know, it's a young horse and you're a professional and you're, you're developing the relationship with the horse, maybe that's not as big a deal. But it's all those those little things that you sort of say to yourself, okay, you know, what's what's the horse going to do in this situation? Um, so after I've done a little bit of, you know, walk, trot, canter, move the horse off my leg, maybe done some lengthenings um, and come back, um, then depending on the age of the horse and what I saw with the first rider, you know, I may try to pull on the ground. I may try to cavaletti. I may... Um, canter cavalry. I may canter an X, um, but I start small and then I work up. I know, for example, it doesn't happen too much in the United States, but when you're in Europe, a lot of times, um, depending on where you're trying horses, you might only have two or three fences in the arena where you're trying horses. Um, they won't set a line of jumps because they don't want you to feel a horse down a line because a horse might surge, a horse might get behind the leg, a horse might not keep an even rhythm. And so those are all things to take away from the horse. And so they may just give you single jumps. So if it's important for you, for example, if you're doing the hunters, that you need to be able to jump in and quietly canter down a line and jump out, you need to organize to, to have that done. And so you need to be able to to do those types of things. Um, having said that, that doesn't always have to happen on the first time. You know, if you if you're interested in a horse, you can come back and look at it a second time and say, you know, gosh, I'd like to see it in a different environment. I'd like to see it with a full course of set, you know, full set of course of jumps up with, you know, some filler. Um, I might want to take it cross country. All of those things, but 
you have to keep in mind what your ultimate job with the horse is going to be and sort of set it up for success. And you talked about, you know, coming back and trying a horse. Um, how many, is there an average time you, you try a horse? Is it two times? It, it sort of depends on your client and it depends on who you're buying from. It depends on how good a feeling you have. It depends on a lot of different factors. It's sort of like, again, dating. You know, sometimes you date someone once and you're like, oh, never doing that again. <laughs> um, sometimes you're like, well, that was kind of fun, but I wonder what he would be like one-on-one and not at a party um, or, or vice versa. Um, so I think the more often you look at horses, the easier it is to make the decision on whether or not you like the horse enough to move forward. So for example, um, a lot of times I'll only look at horses one or two times and I feel fairly confident in my ability to assess a horse. Um, if I'm looking for a client of mine and I know the client very well and I know the person representing the horse well, I'm probably going to be happy with um, one or two times. If I don't know the horse well or if I don't know the client well, you know, I'd like to probably try it at least twice, maybe three times. I think anytime after three times, you've had the opportunity to see the horse in usually different situations. And either you feel good about moving forward or there's something that's bothering you. And if there's something bothering you, listen to that voice in your head and, you know, give it some some room to percolate. And maybe a question will come up that you can actually discuss with the seller and say, look, you know, I'm feeling this and, and how do you deal with this? And, and they may have a very easy explanation of how to deal with, with what you're feeling or they may be like, well, that's how he is. And, you know, this is what it, what it is going to feel like. And then you have a, a different problem to solve. But I think um, oftentimes that people have to come back and come back and come back to look at a horse or trying to talk themselves into something that ultimately isn't the right thing to do. Mm. That's interesting. That um, it was going to be one of my questions too, is yeah, how often, how much should you listen to your gut if it's just there's something you can't quite put your finger on, but if something's bothering you, how, how well, much do you I, listen I think, to that? <laughs> well, I think, again, it depends on how much faith and, and transparency and trust you have someone in the whole process. I know, for example, um, because of COVID and um, travel restrictions, we have been selling a lot of horses off of video um, from Ireland. And so that is a very anxiety producing event, um, believe it or not, for sellers as well as buyers, because we stand behind the horses and we want you to feel very comfortable when you buy a horse from us on the relationship with that horse. And so, you know, we're not, we're invested in the success of the relationship. So I think if you've got someone who as a seller is invested in the relationship and the success of the relationship. And they've proven that by your ability to look at their social media and know, you know, they sold this horse or that horse and they followed it and they've tracked it. And, you know, they have something on social media about the horses they've sold. Um, I think that's a good sign because it gives you the ability to feel like they're going to try to help you solve problems if they come about. 
if you um, go onto someone's social media um, or you know someone who's bought a horse from someone and it hasn't gone well and that person has not sort of stood behind the horse, I think then that little voice in your head takes on a little bit more meaning. Um, but I think, I think there's always a feeling I had, for example, a client asked me the other day, how many times do you buy a horse and it checks all the boxes? And the answer is never, mm. you know, I never, they're, they're animals and they're living, breathing creatures. And so there's always something you'd want to tweak or make better and, um, you know, make a little bit more this or a little less that. And so, you know, I never have a horse that checks all the boxes. I get pretty close sometimes, but I don't, I don't always, you know, I don't rely on that because you can't. And so, you know, sometimes you take a chance and it works and it works out really, really well. And sometimes you take a chance and it doesn't work. And that doesn't mean make taking that chance wrong. But from my perspective, if I have the support of the people that I purchased the horse from and the transparency to know the health history of the horse that I've purchased and taken the risk on, then I feel a whole lot better about my odds of success than if I don't know those things. And then, um, you know, and that moving forward. And so on a, a totally unrelated subject, I think a lot of times dealers or, or people who sell a high volume of horses um, get bad reputations because, you know, you sell a lot of horses. Well, that's true, but I also know where the horses go and I keep track of them. And I'm, like I said, invested in, in how they do and their success. And, you know, not everyone's going to be totally in love with their horse, but at the same time, I'm going to do my best to have a pretty high average. Whereas if you get the one-off person selling a horse, that's their horse. They need to sell it. You know, sometimes it, it gets hard, you know, because they need to sell that horse in order to buy another horse. And if something goes wrong, it, it can be a challenge for the one horse seller to, you know, to help you work through that because, they don't have anything else in their barn to help you ride or um, maybe they didn't have success with the horse and that's why it was for sale or, or whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This might be backing up a little bit, but how, how important is the horse's confirmation to you when, when looking at one? Depends on the job they're going to be doing, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, horses don't read their x-rays and I have some very good friends who are sports medicine vets and surgeons, and I oftentimes will send them radiographs of horses that I'm considering purchasing. And I think it is their greatest frustration that um, that, that x-rays have gotten to be so good um, because I think some good horses are passed by. Um, I know, for example, in Europe right now, they are giving a lot less credence to the whole idea of back x-rays and what those mean. Um, whereas they are still um, very much a factor in American vetting. Um, but they have done some studies and they have found that, you know, the, the back x-ray is not necessarily 
indicative of future problems. And so confirmation, you know, obviously if I'm looking for a five-star event horse and I have a horse that has a very badly turned out left front leg, that's going to be a concern to me because the pillar of strength for that horse, the bones, um, the ligaments, the tendons aren't going to work in the same way that they would in a horse with a straight leg. And so am I willing to take the risk on that horse? It would depend a lot on, you know, where's the horse in the horse's career. If it's 10 years old and I'm buying it to be a, buy an advanced horse and it's going intermediate and it's never taken a bad step on that left front leg, I'm going to feel pretty good about that. But if it's a three-year-old and I'm looking at it to be a potential five-star horse and it's never worked a day in its life under saddle, I'm going to be a lot more suspicious and concerned about that. Mm-hmm. And so I would say it depends not only on the horse's career that you're looking at the horse to have, but also where in the horse's career the horse is and how it's dealt with that confirmation flaw. Mm-hmm. Because the horses don't read the x-rays. <laughs> right. know, there, there, there are plenty of people, especially riders, who have um, hurt themselves and have bad x-rays. <laughs> you know, I know <laughs> myself, I, I have lots of previously broken bones, mended bones. And if you read my x-rays, you'd say, oh, that, per- that person's not going to have an athletic lifestyle. But there's so much more that goes into it. And there's work ethic and there's drive and, and there's heart and, you know, and, and modern medicine is a great thing. And so you have to factor all of those things in. You know, certainly there are, if you, if you look, for example, at the jog, at the international jog, at the Olympics of the dressage horses, the show jumpers and the event horses, and, and you watched every horse that jogged down there, there'd be some serious confirmation flaws. <laughs> But those horses have dealt with them and they have succeeded regardless of them. And so do you throw out the bath with the baby with the bathwater? You know, you look at the factors that of where the horse is in the career and, and, and how they've dealt with it. And then what advice do you give someone who's buying a horse, um, for not getting too emotional or attached. I don't know if you see that with your clients. Um, it's uh, seems like it, it's hard for, for people. It's hard. It's mm-hmm. really hard because, because you're excited. Like I said, it's like a first date, you know, like mm-hmm. we, we've all had the butterflies and, and the excitement of the horse coming home and, Oh, look at my first horse. And isn't this great? And Oh, I'm so excited. And, you know, you sort of, it's sort of like springtime, um, you know, in the springtime of the year, everything is green and bright and alive with the future. And, you know, so I would say it's very hard to tell people not to get excited. But at the same time, it's like everything. I think with horses, the highs can be very high and the lows can be very low. And I think the the thing that you have to work on as an individual is to not make the lows so low that they make you depressed and the highs so high that they make you manic, you know, that there has to be some sort of middle ground. And so, you know, when you get a new horse or when you're looking to pre-purchase a horse, 
you know, be realistic and, and have those moments where, you know, you're developing a relationship and a little bit, I imagine like marriage, um, being married. I love my husband every day. There are some days I don't always like him, you know, <laughs> and, and, and we've chosen each other and we've been together for 30 some odd years, but it's a relationship. And so you get excited because, you know, we've been through some big, some big events, um, both good and bad. And, and I think that's how you have to look at horse ownership and you have to look at when you're getting a new horse, you know, you, you are thrilled with finally finding the one, you know, the one that checks the boxes that you're really super excited about. But but keep in mind, there are going to be good days and there are going to be bad days and and try not to make it, you know, so high or so low. Mm -hmm. And then if it's, you know, you've tried your tried a horse and you're interested in, in moving forward, um, what's the importance of a pre-purchase exam? So a pre-purchase gives you one moment in time and you can do a pre-purchase on a horse in the morning and it can be lame in the afternoon. And so that's important to know and keep in mind <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> because, because and the, you know, and the reverse is true. You know, you can have a horse that's getting an abscess in the morning and it's dead, you know, dead lame, four out of five broken leg lame. And then the abscess pops and by the evening time, it's completely sound. So it's, it's actually just one moment in time. And so it gives you baseline is what it does. And again, um, I think one of the most important factors is, is the horse in work and doing the job you're doing? Have you been able to look at the vet records? Is there anything in the vet records which leads you to believe that the horse isn't gonna hold up to the job that you want? Um, if so, can you hone in specifically on that area? Meaning, for example, for an event horse, you know, if you had an event horse and it's had a bowed tendon, but the bowed tendon was two years ago and it's run three long formats at the level you want to compete at, you're feeling pretty good if the tendon palpates well and ultrasounds well. And, you know, at the same time, if you're looking at a youngster and it's got a cyst and a fetlock, statistically feeling not so good. And so, you know, a pre-purchase for me gives me a baseline. It, it makes sure that the horse is sound on the day, is good on um, hard and soft surfaces. Um, I tend to look at the horse's airway because the horses that I look at, you know, have to gallop. So I'd like to make sure that there's no um, obstruction. And, um, you know, then I take x-rays. And so for me, x-rays are, are more important on a young horse than they are on an older horse, uh, because generally, again, the older horse has been doing the job and has been um, out there and so, and been ridden hopefully. And so, you know, if a horse has a suspect in quotation marks x-rays, but it's been doing the job, I'm much more likely to let that slide as a 10, 12, 14 year old than I am in a three or four year old. And that, I think you've actually pretty much answered this question, but you know, if, if something comes up during a pre-purchase exam and if an issue comes up, 
you know, how do you decide if you can live with it and or what you can live with and what you can't? I think that all comes down to what is your tolerance level? You know, I have some people who will have zero tolerance, you know, and when you're dealing with horses, having zero tolerance is not a very good thing to have because they just <laughs> create situations where you have to be very flexible. And so, you know, I would say if you have zero tolerance in terms of health histories on horses, then you probably aren't going to find a horse that suits you. Um, if you have the ability to be tolerant and the horse has been doing the job with whatever it is, then that's fine. Um, if something comes up and they didn't have any idea about it, like I've had horses that have been doing the job and for example, we find out that the horse has a cataract and it's never bothered the horse and they've never known about it because they haven't, you know, maybe the horse, they, they bred the horse and they bought the horse quite young. It's, they've brought up through the levels and here they are now and they're in a pre-purchase situation and they're told that the horse has a cataract. Now, depending on the size and the location of the cataract, the ophthalmologist, if you go that route to have an ophthalmologist look at it, may say it's not a problem, but they also might say, this is potentially a problem. And so at that case, you know, maybe you negotiate a purchase price reduction. Um, maybe you negotiate something into the bill of sale, which says, you know, if this becomes a problem within a year's time, we get a discount or, or whatever. But you have to, I think the, the big thing is, if you find something in a pre-purchase, I always appreciate when a representative for the buyer and a representative for the seller are there at the pre-purchase because it's much easier to deal with it at the moment than it is over the phone or to have someone trying to explain because no matter who you are, it always sounds worse over the phone. And mm -hmm. usually if you're standing right there, you can work through most things, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you talked about the bill of sale. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? What goes on with it and why it's important? Sure. A bill of sale is a change in ownership between the buyer and the seller, not the buyer's agents, not the seller's agents. They shouldn't be privy to the contract at all in terms of signatures. Um, it is a change of ownership between the buyer and the seller, and it needs to be that way. If you have a parent who is buying a horse for a child, the child cannot sign the bill of sale unless the child is over the age of 18 because they are not a legal, um, a legal adult. And so keep that in mind. Um, so it needs to be with whoever is, is buying the horse. Um, that being said, um, the bill of sale will give you any sort of warranties or guarantees on the horse. Um, so if, for example, you had something show up in the pre-purchase um, and you want that to be stipulated in the bill of sale, it needs to be stipulated um, in the bill of sale, not, you know, just a verbal contract. Um, commissions also need to be disclosed in bill of sale. A lot of people feel like commissions don't need to be disclosed. I know um, there are bills of sales out there without commissions being disclosed. Um, 
there have been a lot of lawsuits over the last 10 years where commissions were not divulged and people were charged commissions in excess and um, sellers or buyers found out about it after the fact and were irritated to say the least and legal proceedings um, happened. And so because of that, um, different states have different statutes on what exactly has to be in a bill of sale, but um, you do need to have commissions divulged in your bill of sale. Um, you also need a description of the horse and any um, registration they may or may not have um, should be divulged. Um, if the sale is pending on anything, for example, a lot of times um, we will sell a horse pending a negative drug test. Um, mm -hmm. Again, write that into the, the bill of sale. Um, any sort of payment options. Um, again, you know, I see my role as a seller or a buyer as trying to get the horse to the person who wants to own it. And so if, for example, I need to do a payment plan because, you know, whatever reason, that needs to be disclosed in a bill of sale. Um, anything that is, is important to the contract really needs to be written into the bill of sale so there's no confusion. What is a dual agency for that term? So a dual agent is someone who represents both the buyer and the seller. It generally will happen, for example, if I have a horse that has been consigned to me to sell, but I also have an in-house client that um, is interested in the horse. Because at that point, I'm not only representing the buyer, but I'm also representing the seller. So it puts me in a rather compromised position um, because I'm working for both parties. So that has to be disclosed if you're a dual agent. Um, Again, most people don't have a problem with dual agency because usually they all know each other pretty well. Um, the other thing that's real important on a dual agency situation is to know what the commission structure is, who's paying who what. And then um, when should a person enlist professional help when buying a horse? You know, the, what are the benefits of it? Um, you know, using someone like you as opposed to going out on their own. If I buy a horse, I usually use a professional. Um, not so much domestically, but always in Ireland um, and always in Europe because the professionals know the lay of the land. They know the landscape. They know the players usually. They usually have a network of people that they can um, source horses from and they know potentially who to avoid as well. Um, as well as they'll have an idea of um, the veterinarian they might want to use because they you know, have um, specificity in a certain area. You know, maybe they are racehorse vets or they're sports medicine vets or, you know, whatever. They have a, a, an extreme knowledge of one area of the horse sport. Um, and they'll also be objective, hopefully, um, to let you know you're making a good decision or a bad decision. And most importantly, a good professional is there to stand behind the decision that's made. Um, people sort of don't understand 
for me what a, a commission means to be paid. When I'm paid a commission, it means I stand behind the sale of the horse. So that means if you have a problem, I can help you or I will help you or I'm involved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people get paid a commission and then walk away because they think that's, you know, they're done. I don't necessarily agree with that position. And and again, certainly there are going to be situations that occur um, where things get a bit messy and um, for whatever reason, the horse doesn't work out. And that's when, you know, having a good professional involved will generally make things be a lot easier to deal with. Um, and then one final question. Uh, why do you think you've been so successful in buying and selling horses and making appropriate matches? I think the thing about me and our farm and my husband and myself is we've always believed that the horses have to sell themselves. At the end of the day, I just try to match horses with people. And so to that end, I try to treat people like I would want to be treated. And I try to be very honest and very transparent in what I do. And I, you know, I want the people who buy horses from me to buy horses again. I want them to tell their friends about the the meeting and the process that we've gone through. I want to stay involved in their journey with their horse and their goals. And I'm invested in making that happen um, to the best of my abilities. And so I think Ultimately, that's why I've been successful. Um, you know, we take we take a lot of pride in what we do. We have a lot of repeat customers, and you know, we follow the golden rule. <laughs> right. Great. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your your speaking with me. No, thank you for taking the time, and and I hope that was helpful to some people. And if anybody has any questions, they can certainly contact me directly. And I'd be happy to share more information with them. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Courtney Cooper. And a big thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode, Bymeda. Learn more at bymedaus.com. Join us again for upcoming conversations with eventers Doug Payne and Liz Halliday Sharp and riders vying for a spot on the U.S. Olympic team. You can subscribe to the Practical Horseman podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I'm Sandy Olenek, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman podcast.